All right, now we're at Genesis 8.13, to 8.22. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. All right, now we have two stages in verses 13 to uh, 13 to 19, two stages of the earth drying up. We know that the waters are evaporating and drying up and disappearing. We know all that is happening. But then the earth has to dry up some more before they can uh, live on it and tread on it and move and settle in whichever place they choose. So the first step is, it says, in the 601st year. In the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. So we have dry water. But he waits by the command of God another month, because it says a month and some days, verse 14. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Now it is completely dry and suitable for everyone to leave the ark. Everyone and everything to leave the ark. Then God commands him, verse 15, Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Now, we know that this is a command of God. It's clearly that, because the quote is in verses 16 and following, 16 and 17. God is actually delivering his oracle, his word, to Noah. But before this happens, we have to understand that Noah was a prophet. And he was a prophet, and he was a preacher of righteousness. We have to assume that. Hebrews 11.7 says he was a man of faith, right? Hebrews 11.7. And then in 2 Peter 2.5, it says he was a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. So at the very least, he was preaching righteousness. But I don't think he was doing it as an average man. I think he was doing it by the word of God, by the direct revelation of God. We know that because we have these quotes in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 7 and in Genesis 8 and even in 9 where God is giving Noah a direct oracle, a direct word from God, a direct revelation. So he is a prophet. Now if he's a prophet, we may safely assume that God is directing his paths at other times though the scriptural text doesn't tell us at every time. We don't know how often, but it's safe to say it's likely that Noah was not just getting these oracles, but other oracles so that he would know 
that God was with him and whatever God willed for him. Now, having said that, verses 15 and following, the reason that was necessary to say is that there are interpreters who come to this part and they take pains to criticize Noah. That Noah is unbelieving, he's lethargic, he's doubtful, he's benighted, he doesn't know what to do, he's going around here and there, he, he basically is a clueless man. And it takes God to open his mouth and to confront him and say, go out of the ark. But the context is not God angry at Noah. The context is not God angry at Noah. The context is not Noah living in sin, Noah being doubtful, Noah being despondent. It's not like that. The, the context is Noah is a man of faith and he is very careful to do whatever God tells him to do. So just as God told him to enter the ark in chapter 7, 7 verse 1, enter the ark. He told him in 7 verse 1, now we have a word in 8.16, go out of the ark. And this is an indication of Noah's obedience. Right. Not Noah's doubt, not Noah's lack of faith, but Noah's obedience. That's what this is. Noah, whenever he heard the word of God, he obeyed the word of God. And he was very careful to understand what the word of God said at any given point in his life on anything and everything that he wanted to do or needed to do. That's the kind of man he was. We know that that's the kind of man he was because of 6.22. Chapter 6, verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. This is characteristic of a godly man, of a man of faith, who believes in the true gospel, that man will desire to please God, to know the will of God for everything that he encounters in his life. Everything and everything that he does every day, he wants that action, that thought, that word to please God. That's the way the man of faith is, and that's the way Noah was. We know that, that this is the case even for the believer, the New Testament or Christian uh, of today sh uh, should be living in this same way. We cannot, on the one hand, say we know God or we belong to God, and on the other hand, not obey Him. Right. It says in First, First John chapter two, verse three, First John two three, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Right. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Noah walked with God, as it says in Genesis 6. Noah knew God. Noah heard the word of God. Noah come obey the commandments of God. It said in 7 verse 5 and in 6.22 that Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. And that's the way it is for us. We will obey whenever God gives us a command. Obey him to do his will. And if we do that, then we know him. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And in John 15, 8, he says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We prove to be his disciples by bearing much fruit. And how can we bear the fruit unless we have the work of the Spirit in us and making us or causing us or enabling us, giving us his gracious power to live according to his will. So the desire to do God's will and the carrying out of God's will are characteristic of believers. When they hear a command, they obey the command. And we know in Noah's case, when God told him to go out, he went out. He went out and he made sure everyone else and everything else that was in the ark were empty uh, or they disembarked from the ark. Now, 16 says, You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, we know in the immediate context, verse 19 says that every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And then in verse 20, he took of the clean animals and offered them up as sacrifices, burnt offerings. Okay? That was one purpose of him bringing them out of the ark. But the other reason, verse 17 says, for them to breed abundantly which may imply that they were not breeding in the ark, just as likely it is the case that Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives were also not um, having marital relations and and none of the wives were pregnant in the ark because those who entered, the same eight that entered, were also the same eight that left the ark. And there would have been time, plenty of time for them to have children in the ark over, uh, there were 371 days. So, it's likely that in this time of gloom and hardship that they kept separate from each other. That's likely what happened in the ark. But when they left the ark, now they're back on the earth with a regular life. It says, breed abundantly for the animals. It also says that in chapter 9 for Noah and his family, 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He also says it in verse 7, chapter 9 verse 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God had ordained not only in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as a blessing, because it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28, before sin entered into the world, and then after the flood, and we know that sin is still in the world. After the flood, God still told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this commandment to reproduce abundantly after the flood is not merely and only because the earth was devastated and there were only eight people. It was not merely and only for that reason. This is what God intends 
for man to do all the time. Because not only in Genesis 1, not only in Genesis 9, but all the time. How do we know that? We know that from several places. Um, For the sake of further study and cross-references, Psalm 112, Psalm 113, Psalm 127, and Psalm 128. Each of these psalms speak of the blessing of having children. The blessing of having children. None of these psalms ever imply, or no scripture ever implies, that to have children is a curse. To have children is a disease. To have children is something that we should avoid until we are rich enough, until we are secure enough, until our self-esteem is built up enough, until we're famous enough. It does not ever say that. In marriage, there should be children. According to the will of God. Of course, sometimes God prevents that. But according to the will of God, that is what should happen. And this is even a New Testament teaching. It's not merely an Old Testament or backward teaching. It is a New Testament teaching that it is good and right for marriage to occur and for children to be a product of the marriage. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. 1 Timothy chapter 5. When he gives instructions about widows, young widows, who are not remarrying but causing trouble in the church, they should remarry. And when they do remarry, he says, 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. As well, he says in Titus Titus chapter 2, Titus 2, verse 3, 2-3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Older women teaching younger women these truths. And lastly, 1 Peter, or excuse me, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. How important is this? 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5 explains. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In the last days, later times, which are our times, between the first coming and second coming of Christ, he says that people will fall away paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So it's a devilish doctrine to contradict what he's about to say. And what do they do? They forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. They forbid marriage. He doesn't talk about mass murderers, which is a great evil. He's not talking about mass rapists, which is a great evil. He's saying they forbid marriage and and advocate abstaining from foods. 
These are the devilish people. These are the people who follow Satan who do not have salvation. So, we cannot say people should not get married. Generally speaking, this is what God has said. With the exception, either it's a gift to be married, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, or it's a gift to remain single. But generally speaking, the predominance of human action in relations to sexual relationships, it will be in marriage. It will be that way. Men and women marrying, when they marry, then they have children. That's the point. They're not supposed to delay marriage, keep on delaying and delaying and delaying, and having sex otherwise by fornicating. They're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to do it in any other way. They're supposed to prepare for marriage and have that union in marriage and then reproduce in marriage. And all of this is a blessing. That's what God is reiterating to us here. (laughs) By implication in verse 17, but explicitly when he addresses Noah in Genesis 9, 1 and 9, 7. Remember, it's not just a command to Adam and it's not just a command to Noah. It's a command throughout the Bible for all generations. It's not a curse for people to come into the world. It's not a curse to be married and it's not a curse to have children. Quite the opposite. And if one says that it is a curse, then he is a son of the devil, according to 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. All right, now back to Genesis 8, 8, 18. 8, 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Now, let's readdress, let's readdress this issue of how many people were preserved and how many people left and from where do we all originate? We all today. From where do we originate? This is important because we have to establish that there is no such thing as cavemen, ape men, Neanderthals, hominids, you know, half ape creatures or half, and half human creatures. There is no such thing. There is no such thing, biblically speaking, and even extra biblically speaking, in history and science. Though there are many proponents, godless and worldly proponents of the belief that there in fact were these Neanderthals, ape men, who existed for hundreds of thousands of years before man came on the scene. No. And they also teach that we, or Adam and Eve, first, Adam was taken from one of these ape men creatures, from one group of them, as a male, and they say Eve was taken from another group of them, a female, and then God brought the two together Just like that, they were already existing as ape-men creatures. And he brought them together. He transformed them and made them humans and endowed them with the image of God. That's Adam and Eve. That's Adam and Eve. And that's how we originated. That's what they say. However, where do we originate? Adam was created from the ground, Genesis 2-7. Eve was created from his side, Genesis 2-18-25. And then everyone else was destroyed by the time of Noah. Noah was a descendant of Adam. Genesis 5 says that. Noah and his family, descendants of Adam, 
and then the descendants of Adam through Noah, they leave the ark. And that's how the whole earth was populated. Do we know that? Can we say that? Yes. Examples of that. Genesis 5, 32. At the end of this genealogy, starting with Adam, going to Noah, in Genesis 5, it says, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Three sons. That's all he had. Three sons. Then, let's look at 6.18. Genesis 6.18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. Genesis chapter 7. 7 verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Genesis 7 verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. If we add up those names, add up those numbers, we have eight people right there. Eight people, 713. And then 723, Genesis 723 says, Thus he, God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. Explicitly saying, only these eight people, eight humans, are there. All the other people, humans, are destroyed. Explicitly stated. We see 8.16 says, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And 8.18, so Noah went out. He obeyed. He went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. They are the ones who left. Chapter 9. Genesis 9.18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. Explicitly, clearly stated. The whole earth was populated from the three sons of Noah. Noah did not have any more sons or any more daughters. The three sons of Noah. Then, chapter 10, verse 1. Genesis 10, 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Then after explaining who is who among the descendants of Noah's sons, 10.32 says, 10.32, These are the families of the sons of Noah according to the genealogies by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. After the flood, all the nations are from Noah's three sons. The Apostle Paul reiterates this point in Acts 17, 26. He's preaching to foreigners, he's preaching to Greeks, and he says, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Paul, in that one sentence, that one verse, he is summarizing what we've just read in Genesis. He's making a summary of all that we just read. We're all from one source. We all are. Therefore, there's no room for any other belief. Biblically speaking, and even extra-biblically speaking, there is no more room. 
Then to confirm that there were eight persons. First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, verse twenty. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight persons were brought safely through the water, implying all the rest were destroyed. That's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the whole world was destroyed. Even 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Peter 2, 5. Speaking of what God did. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. All the rest were ungodly, and he brought these eight through. Noah plus seven others. Only them. Now let's go back to Genesis 8. 8 verse 20. 8 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah built an altar and he offers sacrifice. There was no mediator Between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, the patriarchs at that time, they were the ones who would offer their own sacrifices. They would be their own priests. That's what's happening here with Noah. We know that Noah knew what to do, just as we know that Cain and Abel knew what to do. Cain and Abel knew what to do. We know that because God taught Adam and Eve what to do. How do we know all of this? Going all the way back to God. Genesis 3.21. 3.21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God is the one who brought about the death of the first animals. Garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why did God do that? He, why did God do that? He did that because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But from that point onwards, he institutes animal sacrifice from the time of Adam onward. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. 4 verse 1. Actually, let's begin at verse 3. Genesis 4 verse 3. We know Cain and Abel are born. And then verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. When God interrogates Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? God's question to Cain assumes Cain knew better. Cain knew better, but did not do what he knew. Abel did know, and he did what he should have done. That's why God was pleased with Abel's faith and his offering. But Cain lacked faith, and Cain therefore brought the wrong offering. And he was unjustified in his anger. All of that is on Cain because Cain knew better. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
Abel knew. How did Abel know? Because Adam and Eve knew. How did Adam and Eve know? Because God taught Adam and Eve. Now, no one knows because he was also taught by his ancestors, by his father, Lamech, and going all the way back to Adam. They knew the right way. That's why he offered clean animals. Notice that. He offered clean, not unclean animals, but clean animals. God taught them this distinction. I want you to offer clean animals. So, they are offered as burnt offerings. Burnt offerings means whole burnt offerings. The whole animal is consumed. If the whole animal is consumed, they are not consuming the animals. They are not eating the animals. Because the whole animal is burned in the fire, on the altar. And we know this to be the case because it's only in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. That's the first time that God permits them to eat animals. Before that, he did not permit them. They may have done so. It might have been one of their sins, but it does, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us he gave the green plant in Genesis 1, 29 and 30. Now he's giving the animals and the green plants for them to eat in Genesis 9. So when Noah offers the whole burnt offering and from the clean animals, our next question is, did Noah know what he was doing? Was it merely a bare command? Was it a bare, plain, uh, sterile, neutral command? Okay, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, raise your hand. I want you to sit down. Okay, sit down. I want you to put animals on the altar. Okay, I'll put animals on the altar. Without any explanation, without any interpretation, was it sterile and bare like that? Or was there meaning to it? And if there was meaning to it, what was the meaning? I submit that these animals were a symbol, they were a type, an illustration of the sacrifice of Christ. That Christ would be clean, he would be unblemished, and he would offer his whole body on the cross for our sins. His whole body would be taken up and crucified for our sins. That's what this signified. How do we know that? And then we may also ask, did Noah know it? Did David know it? Did Moses know it? Did Isaiah know it? Did any of these or all of these prophets and teachers, faithful ones, the believers of the Old Testament, did they know that when the animals were placed on the altar, that they were doing this as a representation, an illustration, a type and a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ, that they were putting their hope in Christ, not in the dead animal. Right. Did they know this? And I say yes. yes. How do we know that they had to look forward and that they could not put confidence merely in the death of an animal? Let's look at several references. Firstly, Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 16, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David says, God is not pleased with 
sacrifice. He's not pleased with it. But David knows God commanded it. So what does God desire David to have instead? A broken spirit, a contrite heart. The sacrifice is supposed to remind David of his need for humility, contrition, for him to have a broken spirit. And why should he have a broken spirit? So that when he offers the animal, it will be acceptable to God. If he comes to God at the altar with pride and the animal, God won't accept it. He won't receive it. How do we know that? David knows that. Verse 18. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. After David has humility... Then he can bring the animal and God will be pleased. But not without the humility. We'll also ask and wonder, how do we get that humility in the first place? We'll come to that question. How do we have the humility and then when we have the animal to place on the altar that God will be pleased with it? How does that humility first start? We'll come to answer that question. Our next passage is Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, 6 to 8, Micah 6, 6 to 8. Remember, Micah is writing many years, just like David is writing many years after Moses, when the sacrificial system of the temple and the tabernacle had already been instituted, and they had been doing this for hundreds of years. So Micah 6, 6, the people ask, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? The answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? There we have humility again. He wants humility and the obedience that is the fruit of this humility. That's what God wants. He does not want animal sacrifices, and he also does not want human sacrifices, even human sacrifice from your own production, from your own body. He does not want that. He doesn't want animal sacrifices, he doesn't want human sacrifices, and he doesn't want human sacrifices from our own firstborn child, especially son. He does not want that. So he's telling them clearly, I already told you all this. You're asking me this question, but it's an irrelevant question. It's an ignorant question. And it's even a question of unbelief. Why are you asking me this? This question should not even enter your mind at all, let alone should it be on your lips. And God forbid that you ever act on it. Don't ever do that. Because he says, He has told you, O man. He has told you. Why are you saying it? He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Justice, kindness, walk humbly with your God. That's it. That's what he wants. It's not the death of the animal. It's not the death of the animal that is going to please God. That's not the point. Isaiah. Isaiah confronts this 
misunderstanding as well. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. We'll read Isaiah 1, 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now God is calling the people, his people, he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah because they're behaving just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why he's calling them that. Verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. What's he saying there too? I want you to be repentant. I want you to be humble. I don't want merely your animals. That doesn't help. It doesn't help for you to come together as the people of God in name only and then behave wickedly. You cannot have your sin and conduct a ritual that has put these animals on the altar and think that everything is okay between you and God. You cannot think that way. I won't listen to your prayers when you do that. That's how evil it is. So how does one obtain this humility? How does one understand better? Well, we know if they would just listen to what the Word of God says, if they would just listen to what the prophets said, then it wouldn't have been so difficult. But what did they do? They put their eyes on the physical, the animal sacrifice, without realizing the significance of it. They didn't look beyond it. So, let's continue back to Psalm 49. Psalm 49 will teach us further. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of the soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Now, we've been speaking of animals being unqualified, animals being worthless, animals being unneeded. God is not looking at the death of an animal for the redemption of our souls. Now he also says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. This is similar to Micah 6. But in this case, it might even be an adult man. An adult man, adult good man, your friend, your brother, somebody that you trust, somebody who is a moral man. He's saying, not even this kind of man can redeem me. Not even that kind of man Why? Because the redemption of his soul is costly. It is costly, and another mere man cannot save him from sin. Cannot save him from undergoing decay. Cannot give him eternal life. Another man can't do it. Another mere man can't do it. This is right here in the Old Testament. It's right in the middle of the Old Testament. And these psalms are songs of worship 
So they would have been quite familiar with this passage. They would have known this is here. They've read it many times. They've heard it many times, right? So God tells them clearly, no sacrifice, even of a man, whether a child, the firstborn, or of a man, can redeem the soul of the sinner. So who can and who will? Psalm 40. Psalm 40. This psalm, David writes it, but David is recording the words of Christ to the Father, the Son of God to God the Father. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Christ says these words to the Father. He says that sin offering, burnt offering, sin offering, sacrifice, meal offering, not desired, not required. Not desired, not required. If this is David, David writes 500 years after Moses, or 400 years after Moses. If David writes this, and he's saying this, well, God did institute it during the time of Moses. He did desire it, and he did require it. But desire and require in what sense? In what, what was the purpose of it? He desired and required it in a sense that they should obey it, that they should know it. But what did they need to believe about it? That's the point of this psalm. He has not desired and required it in the sense that they put their hope in that for their salvation, but they should put their hope in the one who says, verse 7, Christ, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. In the roll of the book it is written of me. Where is it written of him? Well, in terms of explicit prophecy, we could start at Genesis 3.15. We could start earlier than that, but Genesis 3.15 in terms of explicit prophecy, a word of prophecy. And then we have it again coming like in Genesis 5.29. Then we could see this in Genesis 12.3 to Abraham and so forth. On and on and on. In the Old Testament, in the role of the book, in the book of the law, starting in Genesis, it's written that Christ would come into the world to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Is that the correct interpretation of Psalm 40? Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, year by year, which they offer continually, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. 
After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. That's the point he's making. He says, Moses said so. Their people were obeying what Moses said. But why does he say not required and desired? Because of him saying, I am am coming into the world. Verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Amen. So, and then he quotes from the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, 34, to say, this is the way forgiveness of sins takes place. Only by the sacrifice of Christ. And notice in Hebrews 10, he quoted from Psalm 40 in order to prove his point to say, we already told you this. David already told you this. David already compared what is written in Psalm 40 with what preceded him in Moses. It's already right there. David knew it. Moses knew it. So why don't you know it? Why do you put your confidence in the ritual of sacrifices? Why do you say Christ plus works? Why do you say Christ plus circumcision? Why do you say Christ plus animal sacrifices? Why do you say Christ plus anything? It should only be Christ. Only Christ. All right, then we come to verse 21. Genesis 8, 21. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Firstly, verse 21, when it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. This is also a figure of speech. It's merely telling us that God took notice of it. God was pleased with what Noah did. The fruit of Noah's Actions, his faith produced the fruit of these sacrifices, and God was pleased with what Noah did, both his faith and his sacrifice, and therefore God is satisfied, his wrath is appeased, and he is ready now to bless Noah and to bless the earth because of this. That's all it's saying. It's not saying that God has nostrils, that God has senses in which he's smelling things all the time and he's taking delight in the soothing aroma or the wonderful smell or odor of meat being cooked. No, that's not what it's saying. It's trying to give us through an analogy, through a figure of speech, through a metaphor, that God was pleased with it. Okay, We know God does not have ears and nose and mouth and eyes and things like that, of features like that, because John 4, 24, God is spirit. Hebrews eleven twenty seven, seeing him as seeing him who is unseen. And 1 Timothy 1, 17, the invisible God. The invisible God. So God is invisible. He is unseen. He is immaterial. 
Luke, uh, Luke 24, 36 to 39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So God does not have flesh and bones. This is only a figure of speech. This is similar to what we saw in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered. God remembered, and now God smelled. 21 also says that he will never again, it's said twice, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. When he says never again, never again as I have done, he means with a flood of water throughout the whole world. That's what he means. Specifically, 9.17, he says more about this. I'm sorry, 9.11. 9.11. And I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be again uh, be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 15, 9.15. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Therefore, God does not mean he will never destroy people or property or animals with water. Because he, there are floods and he d didn't mean that. What he meant was globally, worldwide, he would never do that again. Furthermore, he's not saying he will never destroy the earth again, the whole right. earth again. Second Peter three, Second Peter three, clearly tells us that when Christ returns, he will destroy the whole earth again, but not with water, but with fire. Right. He will destroy the whole world, the globe, with fire, and then recreate that, just as he's re recreating here after the global flood of water. Next time, he's going to do it with fire. Destroy everything by fire and then recreate that. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 10-13. That's what he means when he says never again. Why do we need to clarify? Because those interpreters who are new to the Bible, and they may have a sincere question, what does he mean? But also, skeptics of the Bible, they look at this and they say that there's a contradiction between chapters 8 and 9. And there's a contradiction between chapters 8, 9, and what actually happens in the world all the time. That there are floods that happen all the time. And there's a contradiction between these two chapters, 8 and 9, and 2 Peter 3, and Matthew 24, and all the other places in the Bible that says that God is going to destroy the earth. They see these as contradictions. When actually, they should just read more carefully. No read more carefully and read objectively, and they wouldn't come to those conclusions. A further point to make in verse 21 has to do with God saying that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That this is the reason. Now, this was the reason for him to destroy it. Now it's the reason why he's not going to destroy it. Why? It was the reason to destroy it, to teach Noah and all the people and all of us who read about this, that this is how seriously God takes sin. This is how seriously God takes sin. He tolerates it for a while. He's patient for a while. He's slow to anger for a while. But then there is a point which he will hold everybody accountable. 
He will hold everybody accountable. A day of judgment will come. And this is typified by this global flood. But he says here in 21 that he knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I know that this is the way man is all the time. Not just Noah and his generation, not just the preceding generations, not just the immediate generation after Noah, but all generations are like this. I know that this is the way man is, so I have sufficiently showed man by this global flood how man is evil and I will destroy all unrepentant sinners. I will destroy them on the day of judgment. I have sufficiently shown that. But I cannot and I will not do it every time. I won't do it in the next 10 years. I won't do it in the next 120 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. I'm not going to keep on bringing floods because I have sufficiently shown that. So when he says the intent of man's heart is from is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done, he's saying I have sufficient manifestation of what I think of this. Yep. So when he does destroy again, when the day of judgment does occur, it will be in other ways. When he will finally destroy this earth and then recreate it. Destroy all wicked people and deliver his people to eternal life and the wicked to eternal judgment. And also, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This actually is also in verse chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is descriptive of man before the flood. Genesis 8.21 is anticipatory. It's both current and future, actually, because he knows that that's the way the people who disembarked are that way. At least one of them, Ham, his son, was that way. We know that he was accursed uh, in chapter 9, 9.24-27. A curse came on him. So at least he was that way. But he is describing, actually, all people in every generation. It's not that those people inside were more corrupt and evil than we are. Right. No. Human nature is the same. Yeah. How do we know this? Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 17... Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. He says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand this heart that is deceitful than, more deceitful than all else and desperately sick? The inner man. He's not talking about the outer man, his actions. He's talking about what produces those evil actions. He's talking about the evil heart. 13, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What's the answer? No. No. That does not, cannot happen. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Which means you cannot do good because you are so accustomed to doing evil. Because you are so accustomed to doing evil, you cannot do good. Why? Because the heart is corrupt. The heart itself is corrupt. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, 18. 15, 18. All of us. New Testament, right? So this means this is a perennial truth. 
It's always true. Matthew 15, 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. The heart. What is in the heart defile the man? John 1, 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13 teaches the same. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born, born again, not by blood, because our blood is insufficient. It is not the cause. It cannot be the cause of our redemption, our blood or our ancestry, our lineage. It cannot be. Nor the will of the flesh. The flesh, the corrupt human nature, cannot save us. And that starts from within, from within the heart. Nor the will of man. That's like Psalm 49, 7 and 9. Somebody else cannot save me. It has to be Christ. And that's why he says, but of God. God has to cause us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has to cause that to happen. God produces a change of heart. He circumcises our heart. Or Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God has to first change the heart. When he changes the heart, it produces humility. When he produces humility in us, like he did in Moses and in David and Isaiah, as he did in Abraham, as he did in Noah and Adam, when he produces humility in his people then it causes them to correctly understand why God commands them to do whatever God commands. They understand it because they have a changed heart. No longer a stony heart, no longer a corrupt heart, but a heart that has been transformed by God. They have the new man, the new nature. And because they have that, they know that when they put an animal on the altar, like David did, like Moses did, and Isaiah did. When they put an animal on the altar, they know that animal's not saving me. I, I need repentance. I need humility. And the only way that this can come about is by the Spirit changing me and making me put faith in Christ. Right. Making me put faith in Christ. Which we may also say and reiterate, did Moses know? Yes. Because it says in Hebrews eleven twenty six that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches, for he was looking to the reward. Right. It does not say in Hebrews eleven twenty six Moses was considering the reproach of God. No. It says the reproach of Christ. It says Christ. And there is no textual variant. The Greek manuscripts are all unified on this. It says the reproach of Christ. Christ. How would Moses know of the reproach of Christ? What's the reproach of Christ? The reproach of Christ is not his glory. It's not his resurrection. It's not his ascension. It's not his session. It's not his return. It's not his 
kingship and judgment on the day of judgment. It's not his eternal reign. All of those are the glorious parts. Right. None of those are the reproach. Not all of those are noble. Nothing is ignoble about all that. So what would the ignoble or reproach be? It would be his crucifixion. It would be his humiliation. It would be his persecution leading up to his crucifixion. It'd be all of that. That would be the reproach of Christ. That's what Moses knew. He knew that, and as he taught the people to sacrifice animals, and even as Noah was sacrificing animals, they were putting their hope in Christ. Then lastly, we have verse 22. 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. This is a comfort. This is a comfort that God will provide for man until he desires to destroy man. He will provide for them. He will not only provide for men generally, but also for his people specifically. He will supply the needs of his people by his power to sustain the universe. Even though they had nighttime, practically speaking, although they had winter or fall, practically speaking, in terms of darkness and gloom and rain all the time, not seeing the sunlight, although they had this for a long time, for 371 days or about a year, because they had this for such a long time, God's now assuring Noah and all of us that though he has power to do that, he also has power to sustain and provide. And that's what he will do. God, by this, this word, he's teaching us that he's in control of the universe. Yeah. It's not out of control. And even, he's not just in control of the major events, he's also in control of the minor events. Right. He's not only in control of the minor events, but not the major events. He's not only in control of the major events, but not the minor events. He's in control of all of the events. One philosophy or religion or another, even within Christendom, they get this wrong. Yep. They think that God is in control of certain things in nature, but not all things. Whether it's the major or the minor, whatever, they say he's not in control of it all. But he is. Sure. He is in control of all of them, and it is to our benefit. Amen. He's in control for his people. For his people. Let's see some examples of this. The first one is Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the whole psalm is applicable to this point. Okay, It's applicable asserting God's sovereignty over all nature. But specifically, 104 verse 27. After describing people and the earth, he says, 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. How is it that people and animals have food? Because God gives it to them. God, how does he give it to them? Well, we need rain, we need air, we need sunlight, we need the, the soil, we need fertility of the soil, we need all of these kinds of things. We need pollination, cross-pollination, we need all kinds of stuff to happen, things that we cannot control. Right. We control them to an extent, but a very minor extent. God is in control of all the rest. Jesus believed this, Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 
Matthew 6, the passage we use to comfort us in anxieties about the things that we want, food and clothing. Jesus says here, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they reap. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Then he encourages us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and God will provide. Well, in this illustration, Jesus is teaching us that God takes care of the grass, the flowers, and the birds. For him to do that, there are all kinds of minute details that are occurring in the, uni- in the whole world every day, every moment, right. under the control of God. The sovereign, mighty hand of God is working in all this in order to make sure that it is under control. Even our hair. Whether we have a full hair or a full uh, head of hair or partial or whether it's gray, what color it is, right? All of these things God controls. How do we know? Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Our hairs are all numbered, numbered by God. So, in control. Why does he say this? Why does he say that the seasons and the days and the nights and all will continue to reassure us he's in control of all that happens, they're not out of control, and also for our benefit? Is that not what it says in Romans 8.28? And God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things, and He doesn't mean certain things or only animalistic things or only human things. He means all things. Major, minor, it doesn't matter. All things for our good. That's why He's doing it. And even Ephesians 1.11 who works all things after the counsel of His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. And for whose benefit? Romans 8.28 says for our benefit. Ephesians 1.11 is in the context of benefiting the church. Ephesians 1.11. 1 Corinthians 3.21 So then, let no one boast in men, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. All things belong to us. Everything that's happening is for the benefit of the church. All things belong to us. All things. And he mentions positive and negative things. He says life or death, right? Life or death. 
and for our benefit. 2 Corinthians 4.15. 2 Corinthians 4.15. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. They happen for our benefit and to the glory of God. For, for our good and for God's glory. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.